snow. And last week I started a series called Why in the World Are We Here? And last week preached in his image and for his glory. And that ultimately last week what I was preaching is that we are here to bring glory to God in a variety of ways. And I'm going to preach the next this week and the next four on five specific areas of where we are created and what our purpose is. And I, I want to take the book of Acts and kind of pick out passages in the book of Acts that are going to uh, highlight these particular areas. And so today I'm going to look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It says this, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so for just a little bit, I want to preach on this thought that we are made for fellowship in God's family, fellowship in God's family. I, uh, as you, if you've been around me for a long, uh, for any length of time, you know that I like to read, and probably out of all of my favorite genres of scripture, uh, westerns are my favorite. They're the, they're the thing that I like to read the most. I got that, I guess, from my dad growing up. My dad read Westerns, and, and specifically Louis L'Amour. And, and I, I read, by the time I was 15, I would probably read every Louis L'Amour book that was out there, uh, at least at, up until that time. And many of them I had read twice. I, I, liked, I liked to read them so much that during high school, I would go to the library before school, and I would check out a book, and then I would do my best to read that book before the end of the school day, and uh, sometimes I did that. It just depends on what was going on in class. I happened to be a very good tester, so I didn't pay that much attention, but I was good at, you know, choosing the right A, Bs, and Cs on the test, and, and so it, it worked out for me. I, I, I passed. I graduated, and I got a lot of information about the Old West, but, but if you know anything about Louis L'Amour, he has a famous family in his books called the Sacketts. Anybody familiar with the Sacketts? A few people. Most people in here probably don't read Louis L'Amour. The Sacketts, a well-known family. They, they are in a number of books, some 16 or 17 books at least, out of the Louis L'Amour books that talk about the Sacketts. And the, the, the bulk of the Sacketts stories are about the Clinch Mountain Sacketts. They're, they're a particular brand of the Sacketts or a particular part of the family, but but in addition to the mountain boys, there's also these flatland sackets. And, and, and most of the books actually take place out west, but they have their origin either in Tennessee, where they're originated from, or even as he went back and wrote some of the early stories about where they came from in England and all of that. But, but it wasn't just the sackets. It wasn't just people by that last name, but there were other people related to them. 
you had the Chantry clan, and then you had the Talon clan, and then you had the Chansey clan, and all of these were related, and they're cousins, and have all these connections. A lot of times, they didn't even know one another, but when one person got in trouble, somebody else in the family would always come. Sometimes it's people that they'd never met. Sometimes it was people who had a different last name, and one of those people frequently, you know, everybody knew about the Sacketts, but somebody else, you know, they, they'd get into trouble, and, and they, they just thought they were picking on this one poor old cowboy out there, but no, he was kin to the Sacketts, and they would come in and save the day, and, or maybe it was the Talons or the Chantries or, or whatever else it might be, but they were well-connected, and they were always looking out for one another. And although this family is fictional, there is something special about family. There is something unique about family that is different than anybody else. I'm a middle child. I've got an older brother. And uh, if you have siblings, you understand this, that, that somebody can pick on you, no big deal. You can pick on your sibling, no big deal. But if somebody else picks on your sibling, well, now it's a big deal. That you can talk bad about your brother, you can pick on him, you can do whatever, but if somebody messes with your brother, then you're going to step in and you're going to take uh, offense at what they are doing. It's just about family. Family has connection, and even if you don't always get along, don't mess with family. The Bible says that God has set the solitary in families, that he has taken those that are individuals and they didn't have anybody, and maybe they were orphaned, or maybe, maybe they were just a, an only child or whatever, but when the book of Proverbs talks about this, that he has set the solitary, he's taken those people that didn't have family, and he has brought them together in the kingdom of God, and he has made them a family. I would tell you that the church is a family. The church is not just a, a group of people that happen to get together, but the church is family. We are, we're not genetically family. We're not, we're not biologically family. There's no DNA that we share that's, that would point and say, yeah, I'm related to this person or that person outside of our maybe immediate family that are here. But we are blood-related if we're part of the kingdom of God. We're, we're not blood-related in a natural way, but we are blood-related through the blood of Jesus Christ. And when His blood is applied to us, we become family with everyone who has the blood of Jesus Christ applied to us. Now, I, I know people are like, well, I don't have any blood applied to me. If you've not been around church, you don't get that church lingo. What all that really means is that when you're saved, that when you, when you repent of your sins and you're baptized in the name of Jesus and you're filled with the gift of the Holy Spirit, that the blood that Jesus shed on the cross has now wiped away all of your sin. And, and it's not really applied to your life. You can't see it, but His blood has taken away every sin. It's wiped away all of that, and that connects us as part of His family. We are blood-related through Jesus Christ. And while everyone everywhere who is saved, they are in the family of God. Everyone, everywhere who is saved and is really in a relationship with Jesus is in the family of God. He has called those of us in close proximity to be in fellowship with a group of believers. And it's true that I, that I am just as much a part of the family of God as people in Indonesia. 
who are saved. But I don't know the people in Indonesia. I will never see them this side of heaven. I won't know their name and they won't know mine. But I know your name and you know mine. And God has called us to be in fellowship with one another. And, and when we are in this fellowship with one another, it's called a local assembly or a local church where people of like-minded and like-precious faith, as the Bible says, comes together to worship God. And that binds us together and makes us a family. Now, if you, as you know about family, you have immediate family. Family, that's, that's the people that your, your, your mom and your dad, the people that maybe you live in the same household with. And then you have extended family, and it's aunts and uncles, or maybe uh, all of your cousins or nephews or nieces, they're extended family. And then you have distant relatives. These are people that you may not even know who they are, but they're out there somewhere. They share some level of DNA with you. They're they're they're. Uh, they may show up at family gatherings or family reunions, but you don't really know them. And maybe it's your great aunt Susie three times removed on your mother's side. I don't even know what that means. I still haven't figured. I'm 48. And I'm twice removed over here. I don't know what that even means. If they're either family or they're not. But you have these different levels of family. But the family that's extended are are, are very distant. When you get in trouble, guess what? They're really not coming to help you. They're not going to be there for you because you don't really know them. It's not really like the Sacketts, that if you don't know them, they won't even know that you have needs. They won't even know that you have difficulty. They won't even know how to help you if they knew about your problem. Which is why we need a local church family that is gathered to together, that is part of the people of God. That, that when you gather together in a place like this, and, and you know one another, and you know each other's weaknesses, and you know when people are struggling, you know when they need help, you can encourage them. It's why we gather together in this local body or this local fellowship. The passage that I read to you is a familiar passage. It is just after... The birth of the church. In fact, it is the same day. It's just moments after this happens. On the day of Pentecost, 120 people in the upper room, tearing and waiting for the promise of the Father that Jesus said, you've heard about this, I've told you about this. Wait in Jerusalem until the promise comes. And when the promise came, it came with the sound of a mighty rushing wind that filled all the house where this 120 were. And the Bible says there appeared to them cloven tongues like as a fire and set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit of God gave them the utterance. Well, they're, they're in town for this feast called Pentecost. They're, they're in, there's a lot of people that have gathered in. It's one of the three uh, traveling or pilgrimages that, that Jews would make where they would come to Jerusalem for the feast. This one, they came for Passover 50 days earlier. Now they're back for Pentecost. And so you have all of these people that have gathered together to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And they hear this 120 speaking in all these different languages. The Bible lists some 15 or 16 different languages. And, of course, that attracts their attention. And, and it, when they, the Holy Ghost comes, not only are they talking in all these languages, but they're acting crazy enough that people think they're drunk. 
Peter steps out and he says, these are not drunk as you suppose, seeing it's but the third hour of the day, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last day, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And he preaches a message to the crowd that has gathered around. And as he gets down to the end of his message, the Bible says in verse 37 that they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter tells them what they need to do. He says, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. And so this is by almost every standard, this is called the birth of the church. That the church is born here. The church isn't born in in John. The church isn't born in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. The church is born here in Acts chapter 2 as the Holy Spirit is poured out. It is the birth of the church. And immediately after this, is the text that I read. And and from that text, I want to draw a few things to your attention. Our our text gives us four commonalities, four things that this group of people called the church had in common. And then I'm going to give you three results of the fellowship that they had. The first common thing is this, is that they had common beliefs and salvation. They had a common belief and salvation. And And I'm picking this up from verses 42 and 44 it says if they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer and then verse 44 says and all those who believed were together all of these are people who are believing so here's the deal they had this common salvation Jude wrote this and in his short epistle he says I was going to write to you about our common salvation it's not common because it's just commonplace it's common because it's what all believers should have in the the same they should all have this same salvation experience and he says i was going to write to you about this common salvation but i had to write about something else but what he tells us and what we see here is that there is only one salvation That if you're part of the body of Christ, if you're part of the family of God, there is only one salvation. There's not multiple ways to be saved. People say, well, all roads will lead to heaven. That's interesting because only people that ever say that are people that have never been there. And anybody that tells you that all roads that lead to heaven probably are not going to make it. It would be like saying, well, every road will get you to Washington, D.C. I'm not sure why you want to go there except to see the Smithsonian and a few other things. Not every road is going to get you to Washington, D.C. In fact, every road won't get you to my house. And every road won't get you to your house. And every road won't get you to his house. There is only one way to be saved, and it is a common salvation. There is only one salvation, and there is only one Savior, and there is only one message of salvation. And and what I find interesting, well, I find a lot of things interesting, but one of the things I find interesting about some of the people I talk to is they will say that this chapter, it is the birth of the church. The church is born. And it's pretty clear from Scripture what happened to get that birth of the church. 
Jesus talked about a new birth as well. And it ties in exactly, John 3, 3 and John 3, 5 tie in exactly with what Peter says in Acts 2, 38. The church is born this way, individuals are born this way, and this new birth, when you get to heaven, they fit together perfectly. And people will say that the, 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 the birth of the church is in Acts 2, and then they will go anywhere else but Acts 2 to tell you how to be saved. It's pretty clear. Acts 2.37, when I, I read this to you, or quoted this to you earlier, men and brethren, what shall we do? They're saying we've crucified the Messiah. He was the only way to heaven. Peter's made that clear. You, you crucified the Messiah, and they're like, how do we get saved? What are we going to do? That's their question. It's not just an open-ended question. Well, what shall we do? Well, if you want to build a deck, you go down to Lowe's and you buy wood. They're not asking that. They're asking, how do we get saved because we killed the Savior? And Peter gives a pretty simple answer on how they get saved. He doesn't say, say a little prayer. And every salvation experience should start with prayer. And it does start with prayer. But he he doesn't just say, say a prayer and that's it. He doesn't say, just believe what I've told you. And that's it. This is not, this has fallen out of use a little bit in, in maybe more recent times, but there was a time in the not distant future that people would say, well, if you want to be saved, you just walk down the aisle, shake the preacher's hand. They don't do that as much anymore, especially not during COVID. Or fill out a card and just let us know that you've decided that you want to be saved. Peter could have said anything. Peter could have said, well, if you would stand on your left leg and touch your nose with your right finger. Now, he could have said that. It wouldn't have done anything. So he wasn't just making up stuff. He was telling people how they needed to be saved. And it lines up exactly with what Jesus told Nicodemus. You've got to be born of water and of the Spirit if you want to see the kingdom of God. And so we see that they have this common salvation that 3,000 are added to the church as soon as Peter is done preaching. They believe the message. They receive the Spirit. They're baptized. They're saved just like Peter and James and John and Mary, the mother of Jesus. They're all saved the exact same way. And if you're going to be in the body of Christ and you're going to have fellowship with His people, you have a common salvation that your salvation and mine have to line up with what Peter did in the book of Acts and what Peter said in the book of Acts. Not only did they have a common salvation, but they had a common belief system. The Bible says in verse 42, they continually devoted themselves or were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They could have decided All right, we got the salvation thing down, we're good. But they didn't. They were continually devoting themselves to everything the apostles taught them. It's amazing how Scripture lines up with Scripture, and it all interprets itself. It wasn't just about a salvation experience. It was about a relationship with Jesus Christ. It was about becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say in Matthew 28? He says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. 
And actually, I might have misquoted that. The real, a, a better translation, teaching them to obey all things whatsoever I've commanded you. That it wasn't just about have a salvation experience. It was about obeying everything Jesus said. And the apostles are teaching them everything Jesus said. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Regardless of opposition, regardless of criticism, and I would tell you that there was significant criticism and significant op- opposition in the first century in Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders obviously didn't like it. That's why Jesus went to the cross in the first place. It's because they didn't like his message. They didn't like him, and so any message about him was not going to be okay. Secondly, they had a common all. A-W-E. Now, I don't know if you can understand my Louisiana way of saying things, but they had a common all. Verse 43 says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And, and, and I would tell you that this is, I'm going to make this twofold, but they, at their salvation, it should create a sense of awe that the God of the universe would come down and would take up residence in your life through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. That of all the places God can be, He chooses to be in us. You never want to lose the wonder of your salvation. Never want to, to lose the wonder that the God who is everywhere, the God who is so far beyond us, is also imminent and he is right here in us. But beyond that, they had awe at the demonstrated power of God. That many signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles, and when they saw this, they kept feeling a sense of awe. The Bible doesn't tell us what kind of miracles here in Acts 2 or how recently after this, this day of Pentecost that, that this was happening, but it just said there were signs and wonders taking place and they kept feeling a sense of awe that every time God touched somebody and every time a blind person is able to see and a deaf person is able to hear and a mute person is able to talk, they're going, wow, look at what God has done. I, I would tell you, that we don't see near enough miracles. And in fact, because we don't see enough miracles, we don't expect there to be any miracles. And so if God actually were to show up and do something miraculous, we would probably have a sense of awe. We would say, wow, look at what he has done. But it says many signs and wonders were done by the apostles which means it should be common. And when it's common, it could have the, op- the, the possibility that we get, just get used to, ah, oh, somebody else got healed today. But I would tell you, never lose the wonder of the miraculous power of Jesus Christ to heal, and not only to save, but to heal and, and to deliver and to bring salvation, do anything and everything. We should expect it all the time, but never lose the wonder of His salvation. Jesus is a God of miracles. And when he does the miracles, it is a confirmation of his message. That when you preach the message of salvation and when you preach the truth of God's word, he shows up and does the miraculous. I've mentioned this before, but 
when he does the miraculous, it's a little glimpse of heaven here on earth. I mentioned this last week that when we get to heaven, there's no sickness, no pain, no sorrow, no death. There's no problems. And God does that down here. He gives us a little glimpse of what it's going to be like to be healed, to be restored, to be in that state where God is always taking care of everything right at the moment that we need it. We should, they had a common awe, and we should have that at our salvation and at God's miraculous power. Thirdly, they had a common concern for others. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now, when you look at Scripture, there are a couple of ways to look at things, especially when it's a narrative portion of Scripture. Acts is a narrative portion of Scripture. It is telling us what actually happened. And there there are people that have great debates on whether narrative should be looked at as just descriptive, as in just telling you what happened, or it should be prescriptive and telling you what you need to do. We, for the most part, will view the book of Acts as prescriptive. That if we're going to be like the apostles, guess what? We have to do what the apostles did. If you want to be a mechanic, then you have to do things that a mechanic does. Now, I've done a little mechanic work. I've been around a few people. But most of the time, a hammer is not something you use trying to fix your engine. I've seen it done. Usually it didn't end up too good. So you can't do what a carpenter does if you're trying to fix an engine. Likewise, hammering a nail with a socket wrench is just not going to get the job done very well. So if you're going to do, if you're going to see what the apostles did and you want to get what the apostles got, you have to do what the apostles did. And so for the most part, I would tell you that the book of Acts is prescriptive. It's not just telling us what they did, but it's telling us what we should do. Now with that said, the Bible says, and it's not of the apostles, it's of the people in Jerusalem. It says they sold all their possessions. They pulled all their money together and then they gave to people as they had need. The church of Jerusalem would later run into financial difficulty. And some would say their financial difficulty is because they sold all their stuff and pulled it together and people quit working. I don't know that the scripture tells us any of that. In fact, I know it doesn't really tell us how that happens. But it does tell us that there was significant persecution in Jerusalem. That's where all the Jewish leaders, religious leaders are. That's where they're going to stamp out Christianity as much as possible. And and I would tell you that primarily because of the persecution is why they ended up in financial difficulty. They couldn't work. They couldn't do a variety of different things. But I would also not advocate that we do everything that everybody did. The Bible doesn't say the apostles sold all their goods. It just said the people sold all their stuff and they pulled it all together and gave to people as they had need. But here's what I would want to pull out of that, is, and that is this. It's that they had a common concern for others. As people 
had need. They took what they had and they helped other people. It's what family does. It's what even close friends do when people have need. They give, they sacrifice, they help out people in need. And when we as a body of believers, a local assembly in fellowship together, and not only in God's family, but a, a, an immediate family of His believers, that we should have a common concern for others and should be looking to help them and do what it is that they have need when they have need. Now, at the end of this message, I'm not going to tell you about some need I have, so don't worry about it. God is supplying all of our needs. I preached about God's provision a few weeks ago. But just understand that when you're part of a family, it's what you do is you help out. You're, you care about what they care about. You care about what's bothering them. And when they are doing without, you're going, well, let me see if I've got some extra and I can help you out. It's what you do. So they had a common salvation, a common beliefs, common awe, common concern for others. And then one of my favorites, they had common meals together. I like to eat. It's one of my favorite things to do. It's one of, it's one of the good things. Not, I'm not going to say one of the best things, but it's one of the good things about going to church because if you go to church, guess what? It doesn't matter when it is, you have to eat when you leave. It's just, it's just the way it works, man. We go and we celebrate God's goodness and we feast on His Word. Now we're like, where is the chicken? And we go and we eat. But eating meals together was a big deal in the first century. And, and it's even a somewhat of a big deal for us here. Not quite the same importance. Verse 42 said they were breaking bread together. Some would say that this is about... Uh, the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or whatever. And maybe, maybe that this is a euphemism for that. But we also know from verse 46 that they were eating together. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And in the first century, eating together meant that you agreed with the people that you were eating with. Now, I have, I have found this to be true in, in a variety of ways, not only trying to, to reach people for Jesus Christ, but when I was raising money uh, for the Bible college that I worked at, if I had a big ask, I was going to do it over food. Food allows you to have this commonality, and you get together, and you can, you can have a certain camaraderie, and you can build relationships. It's not just the same as just sitting down, and it can be awkward sometimes, but when you have food, man, you know, they're ordering, and you're ordering, and you get to know them, and you have time to think, and they're eating, and it just, but it also breaks down barriers. And when you get to fellowshipping over food, people just become less reserved, and they'll talk more freely, and you can see what people are really like, and and in the first century, it was a big deal. It said that if you ate together with someone, you agreed with them. Which is why when Jesus would go to eat with sinners, he would get criticized over and over. He's eating with sinners. Because everybody's saying, well, if he's eating with sinners, then he agrees with what they're doing. And Jesus never agreed with what they were doing, but he came for the sinners. 
How are you going to how are you going to save the sinners if you don't get together with them? If you don't fellowship with them at some to some extent, how are you going to do this? It's a big deal in the first century, and the Bible tells us of, of Zacchaeus, tax collector. He's cheating the people. He hears that Jesus is coming to town. And, of course, everybody talks about the height of Zacchaeus, and he climbs a tree so he can see Jesus, see above the crowd. I don't know that that's why he climbed the tree. He climbed the tree probably because he wanted to get away from everybody because they thought he was unclean because he's a tax collector. They don't want to touch him. They don't want to be around him. He's stealing from them. They, if they are around and associate with him, they can't go to the temple. They can't do all the things. They've got to offer something extra now because they've been around unclean person but Jesus sees him in the tree and he says to him he says Zacchaeus I'm going to your house and he says this salvation has come to your house that's an interesting play on words you probably know this but the name Jesus means Yahweh saves Jesus is the Savior. He is the source of salvation. And he says to Zacchaeus, salvation is coming to your house. I'm coming to eat with you today. And if you read the story, his life is changed by his encounter with Jesus. Because salvation in the form of Jesus Christ really went to his house. But eating's a big deal, and so whenever they get saved in, in Acts chapter 2, they all have this common salvation, they have these common beliefs, and guess what? The next step is, hey, we're all going to hang out together. We're going to eat together, we're going to break bread, we're going we're to sit and talk, and we're going to fellowship, and we're going to enjoy one another's company, because we're now all in this same family together. They had common meals, and let me hurry. There are three results of the things that they had in common and that is the overarching theme is that there was kingdom impact and growth and the three specific specific things is this and i mentioned this earlier is that people's needs were met because of they had a common concern and they put their things together verse 45 they shared with everyone as they had need that when you belong to the family, and when you are part of the family of God, and you're part of a local assembly, your needs get met because your family takes care of their family. You take care of one another. But the second thing, and it's in verse 47, said they had favor with all the people. Now obviously they don't have favor with all. All doesn't mean every single person. But the majority of the people they had favor with, not the religious leaders of the day, but everybody else, they had favor with the people. And, and I would tell you this, that when you do good, guess what? People should like you. When you help people in need, they should like you. That when you treat people correctly, or as Jesus would treat them, they're most of the time going to like you. That when you're taking care of people, I can't stand you, man. You're helping me out. You've, I, I mean, I may have heard that a time or two. Not about me, of course. 
But the majority of time, if you're doing good and you're treating people correctly and you're helping them, guess what? They like you. The Bible says they had favor with all the people, that the people like them. It was the same way of Jesus. The Bible says of Jesus that he had favor with the people. The people liked him. The religious leaders didn't, but the people liked him. They liked his message. They liked what he did. They liked all the things about him. The religious leaders didn't like it because he contradicted them and he was basically pointing out all of their flaws and they didn't like that. And I would tell you, we live in an age right now, at least in the United States, where there's a lot of bad-mouthing of Christians and, and sometimes maybe rightly so. But I would tell you that if Christians live like they should live, we will have favor with the people. That doesn't mean everybody's going to like us. It doesn't mean the news media. It doesn't mean the leaders are going to like us. But the people that we're helping are going to like us. The people that we're, we're kind to are going to like us. They're going to want to be around us. And at the end of the day, they're going to want to know that the, the God we serve, they're going to want to know him and get, to, get into a saving relationship with him. A lot of times Christians don't have good testimony in the community. But that's because they're not treating people like Jesus would treat them. But the majority of Christians, if they are living like Christ, everybody likes them. Then lastly, when you have all of these things in common, is that you see the salvation of souls. The last sentence of verse 47, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. That as they, as they ministered and as they went about their business, people were coming to know Jesus Christ and he kept adding them to the body. And, and it wasn't just that they were being added to the well, they're all part of the family of Christ. No, their, their gatherings were getting bigger because people are being added to their group day by day. That when we have the same things in common that the early church, this first church in the book of Acts had, that part of what's going to happen is we're going to have favor, but we're also going to see the salvation of souls as people come into the kingdom and join the family of God. And at the end of the day, that's what it's all about, is having a church that is growing and reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. As the music would come, we have a common salvation, common awe, common concern for others, common meals. And as our tradition, every Sunday we go out to eat with some Sometimes half the people that are here are in the same restaurant together because we want to be together and hang out. And it's just so much more fun when it's good food involved. But when we do all of that, we should see kingdom growth as people are added to the family. How do you get in the family? 
How can you be part of this group? You can show up at a local church all you want. doesn't make you really part of the family. There, there's only one way to get in the family, and I talked about that, and that is to identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we do that by following Him through His death and repentance, following Him through His baptism, or His burial through the waters of baptism, and following Him through His resurrection, through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And when you do that, then you can be part of the family of God. And really, to be in the family, you have to have the same Father. And when we experience that death, burial, and resurrection with Jesus, we can then call Him Father. He becomes the head of our life and the head of our family. Proverbs 18, 24, it, it's an interesting verse because of some of the comparisons it makes. And I'm going to read it to you in the New American Standard, which is different than what I would have been raised hearing. But King James says, if a man would have friends, he must show himself friendly. New American Standard and other more modern translation says it this way. A man of too many friends comes to ruin. That's the opposite, really, almost of what you would expect if you raised on King James. But it goes on to say, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And what this is really telling us is that if you have this everybody's your friend then when it comes down to the rubber meeting the road and you're in need nobody's really there because if you're if you're hey i got all these people that i'm friends with like facebook friends right? you got everybody's your friend then who's really going to be there when you need them but the writer of proverbs under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost makes this comparison there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother and the reason it uses this comparison of a brother is because I've got a lot of good friends out there friends that would probably drop whatever they were doing to come and help if I was in need. But there's no question my brother's coming. I don't talk to him every day, every week, sometimes not even every month. But he's still my brother. If I need something, he'll come. And if he needs something, I'll come. So the writer says, there is a friend that sticks closer than that because... using a brother because it's that's about as good as it gets and people of course would say this is prophetic of Jesus Christ he's the friend that sticks closer than a brother and and maybe that's true but the comparison is also true that your brother is somebody you can always count on your brother is going to be there in time of need and when you need help they will be there a local church is a large, immediate family. 
that is part of the universal family of God. My immediate family is not any larger than the group that's here today. And on a normal Sunday, that group is much bigger than my just immediate family. So I would say to you that a local church is like that immediate family. It's the people who gather together, who call one another brother and sister in the Lord. And, and they come together and fellowship. And they have a common salvation and common beliefs and a common awe at the wonder of God's miraculous power. And they have a common concern for one another. We eat together what a family is it's what a local church is supposed to be as you stand i want to give you three things that i want you to take away from this and and you probably haven't been following along in the app but if you forget them you can go to the church app and they're in there the sermon notes for today if you have not then you need to pray and pick a family or a local church that believes, teaches, and is faithful to the Word of God. Don't just pick a group because, oh, it's pretty cool over there and they do great things. There's a lot of cool groups out there. The question is, are they believing, teaching, and are they faithful to the Word of God? And if they're not, it, you can call it anything you want, but that's not the church of the book of Acts. So pray and pick a family like that. And then secondly, demonstrate your love to your church family by being involved and by caring for one another and taking care of them and liking to be together. And lastly, be consistent in being in fellowship with your family. I'm so grateful that for those of you that are here today that braved the weather and it's not to say anything about those who are not able to be here today or chose not to come you might have been the smarter ones I had to be here anyway so I was like well if we're, I, got, I got to be here to do online anyway might as well just let people come if they want to come so thank you but be consistent in being in fellowship with the family people you talk to the most are the people you're closest to and the people you should be closest to are the people that are part of your family especially those who are of the family of God so would you just lift your hands your voices right now and would you thank God for a local body of believers Lord we love you thank you that you have brought us together that you set the solitary in families Lord I thank you Lord that you have brought us together as a group of people Lord, we're not satisfied with being the size that we are, but we want to grow our kingdom impact. We want to reach other people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to see hundreds, Lord, and even thousands come into your kingdom through what we're doing to become part of your family. Lord, be with us, I pray. Help us in the name of Jesus. You're my brother, you're my sister, so take me by the hand. Together we will work until he comes. There's no fool that can defeat us when we're walking side by side. As long as there is love, 
Once again, so glad you're here. Greet one another, and then uh, 